Blog Talk Radio. September 11th, 2017, and you're listening to Don't Let It Go Unheard. This is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of the ideas behind American exceptionalism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I'm not sure if I've actually done a show on September 11th before. I'm not. We're gonna we're gonna take a crack at that today, and I don't know that I have so much to say to you that it hasn't been said very well by others on this occasion, on the anniversaries through the year. Unfortunately, we're in a situation where 16 years after September 11, 2001, we still haven't named the enemy. And as we will see, our president, who was supposed to be so different in his speech today, did not name the enemy, not even close. So we'll be looking at some of these disappointing and in a certain mood, I'll say, and purifying things. You can go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, don'tletitgo.com to check out the program notes that I have for today. If you see the photo of one of the World Trade Towers on Blog Talk Radio, if you're listening through the browser there, or if you've gone over to the blog, you can see it there. If you follow me, Facebook, Instagram, wherever, you've probably seen this photo that I've shared around The credit goes to Michael Brown. He's a friend of mine on Facebook who took that photo back in 1980. It's just really an an amazing picture. So look at it and and see what was lost. Um, You know, there's the beautiful documentary that talks about the French, uh, what do you call him? The people who go across the the high wire, the tightrope walker. he, you know, the, there's the documentary of the man who did that between the two trade towers from France, and that also helps you appreciate these structures. Unfortunately, I was never in the World Trade Towers at all, but there were many people who had wonderful visits, amazing structures, completely gone. What's in the place can't even come close to, to what we had there, not just in terms of structures and how impressive they were, but what went on in them. I don't think we've we've ever quite recovered. And in terms of our intellectual fortitude and our resolve to truly do what needs, you know, what is necessary to defeat this enemy, I don't think we're anywhere where we should be. And if and arguably even worse. The one thing that I do have really to talk about today is the rejection of reason in our culture and how it continues, not just in this realm, where, you know, we refuse to name the enemy and and realize that it is 
irrationality that is the enemy of human life. But we're doing it in other places as well, and it's getting worse. And for that, we're going to be talking about the upcoming speech that Ben Shapiro is going to be giving at UC Berkeley and some of the continued fallout about that before it's even taken place. So I'm I'm going to be drawing some parallels between the the two events and, and arguing that insofar as we continue to reject reason and the requirements for reason to operate in our country, we're unfortunately in a bad way. Um, I was in a bit of a rush putting these program notes together, so I, I honestly didn't have time to throw in, quote, good news at the end of it, but perhaps that's appropriate on a day like today as well. I could say that the good news is that there are people like Ben Shapiro and Robert Spencer, the ones that I've put there into the, the program notes, fight, you know, fighting the good fight out there on both of these fronts. So, you know, you could say that the good news is embedded in the bad news in, in a certain way. But if people want to call in with a bit of good news, maybe towards the end of the show, I'm not going to argue about that either. The number, if you want to call in, is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Rob in the chat room says, what America needs uh, needs to avenge 9-11 is not better immigration policy, but better defense policy. I would say we need both, right? We need better immigration policy and better defense policy, but the better immigration policy is a lot more fine-grained and targeted than any of our leaders today are willing to implement, uh, unfortunately, because they will not properly name the enemy. I mean, after all, they might be called an Islamophobe or a racist. How horrible that would be. Um Welcome to those of you who are over in the Blog Talk Radio chat room, just kind of looking at the chat room. You can participate there, as I said, or call in. If you call in at that number, 760-888-5817, do not forget to press 1 if you actually want to talk to me and not just listen to the show. I'm not sure if my voice is betraying it or not, but I'm getting some kind of a cold as well. So I'm here at 9-11 uh, in not a great mood because I'm, I'm getting sick as well. And then as you'll see, I read something really infurifying on Twitter as well. And then only after that read Trump's speech, which just added to it. You'll, you'll see that. But first link that I have is just a link to the extensive Wikipedia article on the September 11th attacks. September 11th continues to be the worst terrorist attack in world history. And it is the worst attack by foreigners on our shore since Pearl Harbor. So that's the you know statistic of how horrible it is. At least our president in his speech got something right about, you know, the, the statistics and everything, 2,997 Uh, died in those attacks, many, many, many of them civilians, which is, you know, something that was different from Pearl Harbor, right? In Pearl Harbor, many of the casualties were not civilians. They were military. Um, 2,977 innocent people 
murdered and according to our president by terrorists just terrorists 16 years ago he i don't, I don't know if i want to start with his speech uh, what i'll do is i'll i'll tell you a little bit about why i get so emotional it's not like i lost someone personally um i think in in a way the thing that i lost personally was um sort of a a chunk of my life in a way, because what happened, you know, September 11th, first of all, I'm, I I can just tell you the story where I was and when I heard it and everything, I was up really early that morning. I was a graduate student in philosophy. And at that time I was teaching, I was living in Orange County. I was teaching up in Los Angeles at Mount St. Mary's. And so uh, that particular morning, 9-11, I had a thing to do before I was going to be teaching. And that was pick up my friend at her house, also in Orange County. And I was going to be dropping her off like at UCLA or something. She was going to do something, some medical appointment. And so I was up super early that day, you know, on West coast. And so everything was going on already by the time I was on the road, but I was on the road, I think a little after six or something. It was very early for me. So I'm driving and I'm listening on the one of the morning radio talk shows and there were these people in Los Angeles that had this morning talk show. It was, um, you know, alternative or rock music station and stuff. So these were wacky people. And I'm hearing them starting to talk about, you know, plane hitting tower, or tower collapsing and stuff. I'm thinking, okay, these people are wacky, but what is this? What, you know, what are they talking about? So it took me a couple of minutes in, you know, it's, little after six in the morning, I'm tired of me to realize what they're talking about and that it's a real attack on New York city with airplanes. So, I mean, I can't even believe it. I continue to drive to my friend's house. I can't remember. Maybe I called ahead and said, you have to, you know, turn on the TV and look, I think I did, but I still drove there and my friends came out and, I don't even think I ever went in their house or anything, but they came out, uh, you know, the, my friend and her husband and we're talking, no, I don't think we should drive to Los Angeles today. Right. Because we were concerned that maybe there's going to be a plane and going to LAX and they're going to hit, you know, LAX or something in LA. And so no, and of course pretty much everything was canceled everywhere that day because nobody knew what to expect. So yeah, we didn't go up. I just drove back home. And if you've read, I've got people put me on Wikipedia or whatever, but uh, you know I was married to Leonard Peikoff at the time. So, of course, I went back and had to wake him and tell him. And maybe I had called ahead. I don't remember exactly the timing. But by the time I got there, you know, put the TV on and we're just watching this coverage of this atrocity all day long. And if you can imagine, if you are speaking about this event, with Leonard Peikoff, how he could really bring home to you the significance of the event, maybe more than anybody else. Um, so I was, I was really, really acutely aware of this. I also, because again, I was married to him, living with him. I was uh, able to help edit the full page op-ed that you guys probably all saw called end states sponsored terrorism. Um, after, of course, the people on Flight 93, they said, the, you know, let's roll. It was uh, Todd Beamer, I believe was his name, 
uh, is quoted as having said, let's roll as they tried to go and, and uh, you know, overpower the jihadists on, on that plane. Um, I don't know how I thought this was going to do any good, but I ended up getting some bumper stickers made and a whole bunch of people bought bumper stickers from me to put let's roll on their cars and stuff. You know, a lot of people thought that we were really going to do something. We were really going to go after this enemy. The one person who knew probably that we weren't was Leonard who listened to Bush's speech, but not just listened to it. Cause a lot of people who listened to Bush's speech thought, Oh, he sounds really strong. And if you read the speech, right. And he talks about how Islam means peace and you know, we're not going to do anything to really take care of this enemy the way, the way that it needs to. So, you know, Leonard knew, but a lot of us, we still had hope. And, you know, we were doing things like putting American flags everywhere. Of course, you saw American flags flying from cars, from every building, any place you could stick an American flag, people did it. And that, you know, the younger Bush who had this opportunity to use all of that political capital and the outrage from everybody in all political, you know, everyone on the political spectrum would have been behind doing something real against this enemy. Bush squandered it. And why did he squander it? You know, there's a lot of speculation about that. It could be because of the friendship with the Saudis. As we'll see, it's not that different today. Um, in any event, yeah, so I help edit and I do this. And then, of course, what do we see? We see Operation Iraqi Freedom happens. Bush is still making nice with supposedly, you know, partnerships with people in the Middle East and never really doing anything to address the real enemy. Which actually, you know, if, if it's people who take Islam truly seriously, and I'll talk about why I feel like I can say that in a little bit as well. Um, and no, I don't think that Islam is a race and no, I don't believe all Muslims are terrorists or any of that stuff. You know, call me an Islamophobe. Am, am I afraid of Islam? Not per se. Am I afraid of people who take Islam seriously? Yes, because Islam has in it, if you take it seriously, some doctrines that are inimical to human life. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but, you know, here are these people, they take this religion extremely seriously course our president never mentioned it was religion that motivated these people in his speech today no he wouldn't do that uh, they take this religion very seriously and they carry out these horrible attacks on innocent civilians and these beautiful structures here in United States and massive massive horror and destruction in it in its wake yeah uh, that's something to be afraid of. So you say Islamophobe. I mean, no, I can't be afraid of ideas that are just in a book somewhere, but can I be afraid if those ideas are influential in ways such that people who are motivated by those ideas are out there trying to kill human beings? Yes, that's worth being afraid of. So, you know, that whole Islamophobia. In any event, before 9-11, you know, as, as I recall kind of the trajectory of my life before 9-11, I was really, really active, um, you know, out there kind of politically. And I was writing op-eds and stuff. I wrote op-eds about Robert Downey Jr. And I went and flew to Miami to try to help Ilian Gonzalez stay here in the United States. And then I was on Fox News about that. 
And per, potentially I was on the path to do, you know, maybe a lot of the things that I do right now. And after 9-11, I kind of just withdrew from the world for quite some time. And I spent many years distracting myself with dog agility, which was fun and awesome. And yeah, I was always an athlete and it was a great thing. But I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that after 9-11, there was some sort of a a PTSD effect in my life. And I'm not throwing it around lightly, where I just kind of withdrew and was skeptical about how long Western civilization would last on my ability to be effective as any sort of an intellectual activist. Um, and I, I didn't. I, I just went out there and enjoyed myself for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, was that good? Was that bad? I, I, maybe it was good. In some ways I say, well, what, you know, what could I have accomplished in those years if I wasn't so demoralized by what went on in our lack of response afterwards? But, you know second guessing now is no good in some ways I think all of that contributes to what I'm going to be able to do in the future so we can go ahead and go on from that but that's kind of my 9-11 story the only thing I have to add to it is a few days after when we resumed classes at the school where I was teaching I remember going in and one of my colleagues tried to start in a conversation with me saying something to the effect of we United States deserve the attacks because of what, and I just had absolutely no patience for it. I, I mean, I was polite, but obviously I was visibly agitated. There's no way that the way I felt about what he was saying didn't come across, but I said, look, um, there is just no way I can listen to that sort of thing. And, you know, I probably, I said this, you know, a few days after the attacks or whatever, And I just cut off the conversation and left. I was not going to hear any of that, this idea that somehow we had it coming to us on 9-11. That was ridiculous. Um, So my story is probably not all that different from many of yours, except for some of your stories may have involved personal loss, perhaps a threat to your own life. And I can only imagine how much more traumatic that would even be. Uh, the only thing I could tell you as to why I would get so traumatized is I'm just, I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people, for instance, like if I watch shows, I get so absorbed. Like for instance, Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad is supposed to be a really wonderful series. I can't even watch that. I was sort of traumatized by attempting to binge watch um, the Sopranos series. I found it really hard. So I, I find it, really hard to to even watch this stuff or conceptualize it. I just absorb it. It just seeps in. And like I said, being around Leonard Peikoff and, and hearing him talk about this and getting involved in writing the end states that sponsor, not writing it, but editing the end states that sponsor terrorism alongside Leonard and Yaron Brook, it just really brought home how significant this was in terms of the decline of the West. So... Um, so there I was absorbing it and then I decided to go off and and play with my dogs for a few years. Um, I did other things too. You know, it's not that I I didn't and I got involved in privacy and I did some decent work there, but I wasn't so much on the intellectual activism axis for, for many years afterwards. Okay. So 
what do we have in, in terms of commentary today? Robert Spencer has a piece over at Front Page Magazine. Robert Spencer's Jihad Watch is awesome, by the way. And it, it, as far as I know, he is meticulous about giving you stuff that's always backed up with citations, sources. He's not going to give you, quote, fake news. The one thing I would say about this piece here, you know, this on this day, December 7th, is that he's probably not going to be as hard on Trump as I would be. I think, he, you know, and, and also he and I would disagree on immigration. I think he wants a much more restrictive immigration policy than I would. There's other places that he and I would disagree as well. But the thing that I'm amazed with, with Robert Spencer, is that Every single day, he immerses himself in the reality of the jihad threat against all civilized people all over the world. You know, he's always writing about this attack or this risk over here, or the, this scumbag over there and what they're doing and how these people are refusing to face the truth about this enemy and what they want. Um, and nonetheless, when you meet this guy, he is jovial and witty and funny and everything. I mean, he, he just, to me, he's got the best sense of humor. It's the happy warrior spirit and how he's able to maintain that. I, I don't know. It's, it's incredible. So he asked you in this piece to imagine what if world war two had been fought the way the defense against global jihad had been. And he writes this whole imaginary speech puts it in the mouth of President Adlai Stevenson, and it's this nationally televised address, et cetera. I'm just going to give you a few, you know, kind of taken almost at random excerpts here. You know, suppose that he said, the Germans are not our enemies. The Japanese are not our enemies. We are fighting against the tiny remnant of extremist ideologies that have unfortunately hijacked the noble traditions of the Shinto religion in Japan and nationalist socialism in Germany. And we will prevail, but we will prevail hand in hand with the Japanese and German moderates who have been the first and most numerous victims of these extremists. And he goes on. Now he says that in this imaginary speech, right, where, and, and I would suggest, you know, if you, if you haven't really thought about these issues in terms of is Islam really the problem? What about moderate Muslims? Can't we make these great alliances with our friends, the Saudis, and defeat the jihadist enemies, etc.? Have we done it? No, we haven't defeated. And we're continuing to do this, and we are continuing to refuse to name, uh, you know, what is really at stake. Imagine if we had said this. Imagine if we had said this post, you know, during World War II. That's ridiculous. He says, uh, he says, and this is again Stevenson, he's the imaginary Stevenson. He says, after consulting with representatives from the Council on Japanese-American Relations and the Nazi Poverty Law Center, you know what he's talking about there. He says, I have issued a proclamation declaring the 16th anniversary of the terrible day, which of course would be Pearl Harbor, you know, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, a day of solidarity against Germanophobia and Japanophobia. We've mourned the loss of innocence on our battlefields in California and Connecticut, but groups like the Shinto and Nazi extremists know that they will never be able to defeat a nation as great and strong as America. 
Yeah. So, and when he does this, right, he says that he's actually paraphrasing some of the verbiage that came from Barack Obama, one of his, you know, Barack Obama's 9-11 speeches. But I would love to hear what Robert Spencer would say about Trump's speech today, because he's very strong here. He says one key reason, and I'm skipping down in this piece, he says why this war drags on 16 years after 9-11 was implied in the address of, quote, President Stevenson, you know, the thing. He says millions passively and unthinkingly accept the dogma that to speak honestly and accurately about the jihadis' motives and goals is to descend into, quote, racism and bigotry and to endanger innocent Muslims. And he says, and so 16 years after 9-11, it's still almost unheard of for there to be an honest discussion of jihadi motives and goals in the mainstream. And of course, Spencer has been ostracized. I wouldn't say, you know, is he a victim of censorship? If, you know, I don't know if YouTube, and but he has had trouble out there on some of the media companies not allowing his stuff to be shared or monetized or you know, the way that it should. A lot of people are just refusing. And I'm sure he's on a hate list for Southern Poverty Law Center as well. He says, even after the election of Donald Trump as president, the free West is dug in, wholeheartedly committed to denial, willful ignorance, and policies that are self-defeating to the point of suicidal. In light of that, the wonder is not that this war has lasted so long, but that we have held out so long. Unless the political landscape changes considerably and this denial is decisively rejected and discarded, darker, much darker days are coming. And I would agree, uh, at least he's saying, you know, even after Donald Trump, but I would like him to call out Trump specifically as well. Of course, he didn't have access to Trump's speech when he was putting this together, but I'm going to be interested to follow up and see what he thought of Trump's address. Now, in the chat room, let's see what we got here. Oh, am I breaking up still a little bit? Oh, other people are saying the sound is okay. Okay, well, I'm glad that that's good. Um, yeah. Is it modern, postmodernism and today's irrationality? It's real culprit. I mean, that's really going to be my argument for today, right? That irrationality is our biggest problem. The rejection of reason and the embracing with you know among people in our culture of the idea that you can force to be rational in some in certain ways that force has any role in discourse you know about about ideas and, and things like that you know what we need to do what we need to do is we need to live a life based on reason and principle and we need to do it in every area unless of course we do think that we are truly on a lifeboat and i don't think we're on a lifeboat here um you know l- let's get let's get into pr- trump's address and actually they're going to try to give me trump actually speaking and i don't want to hear him talk ooh it's so gross okay go wait they keep trying to give it to me. Don't, don't. I don't want to hear him. Okay. No, it's there in my ear. Go away. I, these videos, they are so evil. The little pop-up videos on these websites. I go over to this time link that I gave you guys. And if you don't affirmatively turn it off like 12 times, you will keep hearing Trump. 
So I'm sorry about that, but it does have a full transcript, and that's why I gave you the link to that particular instance of it. So beginning, you know, it's an honor, and then he says, of course, prayers. And and I give my best wishes to everybody who is still feeling the effects of of Irma, and anybody who has, you know, have have had to dug out, you know, dig out after Hurricane Harvey, and, and these these are horrible. So I would think yes, that's appropriate on 9-11 for a president to, to mention these catastrophic weather events that are, that are going on. Um, he, you know, I talk, and when Americans are in need, Americans pull together, we're one country, we're going to be stronger and more determined. This is just all rhetoric. Uh, then he tells the story and he's a good storyteller. You know, he talks about what happened on 9-11. It's a day very much like today. Parents dropped off their children at school Etc. Then our whole world changed, and you know he talks about the attacks in the in the different places, and talks about yes, it's the worst attack on our country since Pearl Harbor. Um, expresses sympathy for those who lost friends and family members, loved ones on 9/11, and. You know, he says, so, so we can never erase your pain or bring back those you lost. We can honor their sacrifice by pledging our resolve to do whatever we must do to keep our people safe. Keep our people safe. Now, you could say avenge. Um, avenge the loss of those lives, but to keep our people safe. I mean, t- there's all kinds of things. Uh, the world changed, but we also changed our eyes were open to the depths of the evil we face. And he, he talks a lot in this speech about the evil we face, but he never names what that evil is. And that evil is a religious fundamentalism that is so all-encompassing and so motivating for somebody that they are willing to kill and take their own lives for it. That is the evil. But he never mentions any of that. In the hour of darkness, we came together with a renewed purpose. Our differences never looked so small, our common bond. So it's all unity, 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 blank stuff. The sanctified grounds on which we stand are a monument to our national unity, national strength. Pentagon is a global symbol of American might and these courageous troops, and etc. People who perished on these grounds service members and everything, um, veterans, they served everywhere, pledged their lives. He says the, uh, each of those brave Americans died as they lived, as heroes doing their duty and protecting us and our country. And that's, that's true. Um, but is he actually going to name this evil, evil, evil? You'll, as you'll see, we doesn't, uh, he doesn't. Uh, Flight 77 at Dulles, and he talks about them, everybody who was on that plane had a family uh, people that they loved and who loved them and they were all left behind um, and shed our tears for everyone who was lost etc et which is all good but does he ever do this now, now then the next now he starts to talk about the enemy here he says the terrorists who attacked us just terrorists terrorists the terrorists who attacked us thought they could incite fear and weaken our spirit but America cannot be intimidated, and those who will try will soon join the long list of vanquished enemies who dared to test our mettle. Um, okay, so 
first of all, it's 16 years later. If we have a president who is just calling them terrorists and not even naming who they are, how credible is him saying that, oh, if you actually try to do something to us, you're going to join the long list of vanquished enemies. We still have the Islamic State out there. One of the stories that I've got today is that the Islamic State apparently has it in its possession, this is thanks to Robert Spencer over at Jihad Watch, uh, the Islamic State apparently has in its possession 11,000 blank Syrian passports. So I'm pretty sure that if the Islamic State is listening to this, they're not really detoured. I mean, every so often we hit somebody there, but they're still operating and we're still taking in refugees. Anyway, let me continue with this speech. Uh, This speech made me quite upset. In the years after September 11th, more than 5 million young men and women have joined the ranks of the military. Okay, so we're going to have the military. um, Ensuring, he talks about these horrible, horrible enemies. Enemies like we've never seen before, right? You know, he wants to say we've got these horrible enemies. Oh, and he calls them the barbaric forces of evil and destruction. So all we know, they're barbaric, they're evil, they're destroying things, they're horrible, they're horrible, they're enemies like we've never seen before. He says, we're ensuring that they never again have a safe haven to launch attacks against our country. We're making plain to these savage killers that there is no dark corner beyond our reach, no sanctuary beyond our grasp, and nowhere to hide anywhere on this very large they're savages they're barbaric they're the evil like we've never seen before but let's not name anything about what is motivating them what is it that animates these people who killed us on 9-11 nowhere in his speech does he say it remember trump was supposed to be very different and trump was bragging in other contexts about he was willing to say radical Islamic terrorism, which is a term that came from Ted Cruz. I still think it's a disappointing, lame term, radical Islamic terrorism. I'm not even sure I really like Robert Spencer's term, which is Islamic supremacism, but at least that's a lot more decisive. I would just call it jihad or Islamic terrorism. Why not Islamic terrorism? It is Islam that is motivating these people. Not everybody who is a Muslim is a danger. Not everybody who's a Muslim takes that part of their religious doctrine seriously, which is good. But nonetheless, that is what it is. And here is our president participating in the same camouflage that everybody else has forever and not talking about it. So he's going to tell you how evil they are, that they're enemies like we've never seen before, but he is not naming them at all in this 9-11 address. Continuing, Since 9-11, nearly 7,000 service members have given their lives fighting, quote, terrorists, terrorists around the globe. A number of objectivists have talked about this. Terrorism is a tactic. It is not an identifier in any way, shape, or form. It just tells you a tactic that certain people have used. So you've had IRA terrorists and, you know, terrorists and all kinds of causes Around the, you know, you would say that the, you know, the Japanese were terrorists against us. Um, you know, the kamikazes, right? That was terrorism. Terrorism doesn't tell you anything about who the enemy actually is. It just tells you that they're predisposed to use certain tactics. 
you know, tactics. It's, it's incredibly wimpy. And remember, Trump was supposed to be different. He's the one who is actually going to handle this Islamic enemy once and for all. Not based on this speech. I wouldn't predict it at all. He says, some of them rest just beyond this fence in the shrine to our nation's... Okay, no, no, this is the right. This is going... The people who uh, who were buried in the cemetery, yeah. He says, they came from all backgrounds. Now, listen, he's talking about the soldiers who, who have given their lives. He says, these soldiers came from all backgrounds, all races, all faiths. So he puts all faiths in the last of the list in this parallel construction, right? So he's got, you know, how do you describe these people who gave their lives? All backgrounds, all races, all faiths. And he does that on purpose, right? Because he wants to point, he wants, he knows in your mind, you're going, oh yeah, some of them were Muslim. Some of them were Muslim. So everything's cool. Islam's all good. We don't have to worry about that. Right? That's why he puts that last in the list of characteristics that he's discussing for these service members who gave their lives fighting, quote, terrorists around the globe. They were all there to dedicate their lives, and they defend our one great American flag. They and every person who puts on the uniform has the love and gratitude of our entire nation. And that's true, okay? That's true. But my point is is that he needs to be given, giving this sort of tribute to our servicemen and at the same time, acknowledging what the real enemy is stating what you know identifying the enemy properly otherwise we have no hope of ever ending this war not in a good way anyway as we stand on this hollow ground we're reminded of the timeless truth that when america is united no force on earth can break us apart no force it's it's we united around what I ask you, sir. He thinks we can unite around anything. Um, And in fact, later in the speech, he talks about being united around a flag. We need to be united around ideas, fundamental ideas. And and this guy has absolutely no clue. And then he he talks about there was a particular uh, officer, Isaac Hoppe, on 9-11 and all the heroic things that he did. And he was there. And so that's good. He congratulated him to him and every first responder and survivor of the attack. You carry on the legacy of the friends you lost and you keep alive the memory of those who perished. Um, We're not supposed to just be keeping alive the memory of those who perished. We're supposed to keep alive the memory of why they perished. We need to know why they perished so it doesn't happen again. And none of this speech is helping in that as far as I see it. Yes, he's giving sympathy and he is talking about the American spirit, all of which is true. But as I've talked about so many times on this show, a, an American sense of life, an American spirit, the better part of it has ideas behind it. And we, we've got to identify those ideas explicitly. Um, sympathy for the family members who are coming back to this place. And then he says, um, you know, again, that all these people you strengthen us here on the west side of the Pentagon, terrorists tried to break our resolve. Again, it's nothing about, it's just terrorists, evil and terrorism. That's it. He says it's not going to happen. Where they, the terrorists, left a mark with fire and rubble, 
Americans defiantly raise the stars and stripes, our beautiful flag that for more than two centuries has graced our ships, flown in our skies, and led our brave heroes to victory after victory in battle. The flag that binds us all together as Americans who cherish our values and protect our way of life. Let's state those values. Let's talk about what that way of life is based upon. Let's not just talk about the flag. He keeps going on about the flag, the flag that reminds us today of who we are, what we stand for, and why we fight. He names the phrases, the description of what he should actually be naming explicitly, and he never, ever, again, this inaugural address that he gave, he never talked about the principle of individual rights on which our country was founded here, he never talks about who the enemy actually is, what motivated, what animated the enemy on 9-11. And he doesn't even talk about what we actually stand for and why we fight. After he gives this list, the flag is reminding us of who we are, what we stand for, and why we fight. Say, tell us, who are we? We are people who want to live our lives in peace and freedom and pursue happiness. What do we stand for? We stand for, if you actually stand for Americanism, you stand for reason. You stand for individual rights. Why do we fight? We fight righteously in self-defense because we know that we have the right to protect our lives from those who would initiate force because the initiation of force is evil. And we know that if you know, for example, we've got an Iranian theocracy that's potentially going to have nuclear weapons and the ability to carry out jihad on a nuclear scale, that we are entitled to fight against that. And it has nothing to do with, quote, making deals and, and everything else. The, the speech is empty, unfortunately. Now, some people, oh, he sounds so strong. He may have sounded strong. I didn't listen to him. He probably did. It was like George you know, W. Bush before him. Oh, it sounds so strong. Um, if you actually analyze it, it's it's garbage. Um, and reading it today made me quite angry that there's just nothing there. Our values will endure. Our people will thrive. Our nation will prevail. What are our values? What is it that's going to endure, huh? We're going to overcome together every enemy and every obstacle that's ever in our path. Really? So why are we united? What are we united around? He, he wants unity without any reason for unifying. Uh, he's not giving any of it. You know, well, we all suffered together. That's the reason to be unified. You know, maybe in a wake of an emergency, yes, you give every person around you the benefit of the doubt and you help like human beings always do. Help each other get through an exigent emergency like 9-11. But 16 years later, not properly dealing with this enemy. All of this is completely empty rhetoric. And I asked you, Trump supporters, were you not disappointed to hear this, that all he talked about is terrorism, how evil, evil like we've never seen before, et cetera, but I'm not going to dare name the source of the evil, what it is that's motivating these people. Yeah, just Jean says, all of this talk about vanquishing and prevailing is pretty empty after 16 years. Rob says, yes, the victims of 9-11 were a sacrifice to the enemy evil. It didn't have to, you know, didn't have to be this way. It did not have to be this way at all. Now, what was it that I saw before this that got me 
upset and, and already wanting to know, you know, what in the world did this guy actually say on 9-11? I had to search out the transcript and read it. I'll tell you about that right after. I'm going to take a few seconds of music here for a break. Okay, everyone, I'm back here. And I actually got to take a couple sips of the coffee that I'd put aside as well. Um, I made the coffee just before the show started. I haven't had a chance to, to drink it. I've got one of these old, I don't even know if you could still buy these things, Mr. Coffee coffee mug warmers and stuff. I think the only way you can get them now is used old on eBay and stuff. So, yeah, I've got one of these. It's got like a crack in one place and stuff. And, but it keeps the keeps the coffee warm, which is good because I get the and I don't drink it. So I was out on Twitter and I, I was thinking, you know, what is it really? What is it today that I'm going to look at that's going to get me really upset? Like I'm not going to be able to handle it and be polite about it. And there was this, actually I have to go ahead and, and click the link out there. So one guy, he's calling himself temporarily. Trump was in New York City. Talk about concrete bound. So Trump was in New York City on 9-11. You're supposed to be impressed. And what he, he's got a picture of Donald Trump there. And Trump, you know, he looks so tough. And he's, you know, the, the thing that just came to mind is um, there's the the old videos about the the guy, real men walk away from explore. Was it? Yeah, they walk away from explosions like they don't run or something. I can't remember, but there's a whole funny bunch of memes out there about tough guys just walking away from explosions. They don't run. They just kind of walk casually, I think. Or so. so here's Trump. He's looking all tough in this picture, photo op-ish. And this guy, who's obviously a Trump supporter, Jack uh, Posobiec, maybe is how you pronounce it. Donald Trump is the first president to have personally lived through September 11th, as in like he was actually in New York City on that day. Um, well, there's a there's a whole discussion going on here on on Twitter, so that that'll be interesting. Um, <laughs> I think I dropped a bomb just before I started the show by putting the thing out there about his speech and how he never named it. Um, never name the enemy at once in in the speech. So, yeah, let me get let me get to to my tweet here. Yeah, so so that was that guy. That guy Jax puts out there. Donald Trump is the first president to have personally lived through September 11th. So someone else quote tweets him and says, "Mrs. Brian Kilmeade, journalist, whatever. I don't really. Um, yeah. Oh, co-anchor of Fox and Friends. Okay. So he puts out there, understood the reality of the Islamic threat." witnessed and was at ground zero right away. Okay. Um, so Brian, first of all, if I had read the speech, I would have included, well, I don't know if I could have included in my 140 characters, but I would have tried to include this guy, the fact that really, if you understood the reality of the Islamic threat, why didn't he mention Islam, Islamic jihad? 
radical Islamic terrorism? Why didn't he mention any of that in his speech this morning? But no, Kilmeade is one of the people at Fox. And, I, you know, I would like to be on Fox again. But one of the things that concerns me about Fox is that they are just apologists for this president. And if you are supposed to be a journalist and you're supposed to help to keep our political leaders in check, you can't do it by being apologists. So what is uh, Trump? Understood the reality of the Islamic threat, witnessed, and was at ground zero right away. Now, this is ad hominem, first of all, right? It's a logical fallacy to say that, oh, because Trump was in New York City, so therefore he is a better leader than anybody else who could be leading the president of the United States. That's garbage. But, you know, even if you say, okay, well, he was there and he saw something, and, and, and again, you know, the thing that I was telling you guys at, at the beginning of the show about how I felt it profoundly, profoundly affected me, even though I was not there. I didn't witness it personally. I was watching it on TV like so many other people, watching people jump out of the towers to their deaths and all of that, like a lot of other people. I, did I know, I know? I knew some people personally who narrowly escaped from, you know, I heard those stories, but I didn't know them really well. I wasn't really close to them. Trump is right there. Maybe he lost some friends and stuff too, but whatever it is that he, what experiences he had that I didn't have, nonetheless, it hasn't helped him. Those facts have not seeped into his consciousness, his reason, right? And he has not decided that he's going to consistently identify the enemy. So yeah, kill me, go read Trump's speech from today. And you tell me how much he understood the Islamic threat. Well, he said that these enemies are really bad. We need to name them. We cannot be scared. Trump is just as scared as everybody else to actually name what the enemy is. And that shows that he's going to be just as weak against this jihad enemy than that everybody else is. My answer to him had to do with Trump making nice with the Saudis recently. And you may all remember, and I put this funny meme that my friend Benjamin made uh, when he, you know, uh, Trump was visiting Saudi Arabia, and they have that that uh, just like iconic now orb picture where the Saudis and and then he and Melania are like you know putting their hand on this glowing orb, and um, they're all dedicating themselves to fighting, quote, extremism. It, it's an anti-extremism center that they're dedicating in Saudi Arabia. It's revulsifying. Why? Because if you read the 28 pages that were redacted from the 9-11 report, you see that there is a connection between the Saudis and 9-11. The Saudis were instrumental in bringing about this atrocity of 9-11, and Trump is out making nice with them. Even within the last week, he was tweeting friendly things about the Saudis. It is truly revulsifying. So if he understood, if he truly understood it, would he actually be making nice the way that he is with the Saudis? I say in the tweet, he's no different from the others. And he's not. He is not any different from any of the others. Trump supporters call in and defend him. Ooh, I've got somebody who wants to talk, so maybe somebody is going to challenge me on this. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Yes. Uh, hi, Amy. Uh, John Kenny from Carson City. Oh, John, you're not going to challenge me on this. You're no, you're no Trump supporter. 
I know that, right? Well, actually, actually, I did vote for Trump because I'm in Nevada, and that was kind of a toss-up state. And I, I figured a Hillary presidency would be, uh, you know, ultra disastrous. You know, eight more years of Alinsky Marxism. At least, the, at least the Republicans would challenge Hillary more, right? It's really unclear what's going to happen oh. under Trump. I'm I'm starting to get worried. We'll see. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. ahead of time, ahead of time, not maybe. You know, again, I could see in certain limited contexts voting against Hillary. So you know, the motivation well, yeah. makes. But but you know, just to make something a little bit lighter than everything so far, there was this article that I shared on Facebook. I don't know if you saw it. I, I think I shared it publicly. And it's uh, Glamour Magazine. There's this pathetic woman, and she says something yeah. like, why, why can't I stop hooking up with Trump supporters or something? And she's a leftist, and she keeps, like, sleeping with these Trump supporters or voters, Trump voters. And, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, if I was on the market, um, you know, if somebody voted for Trump, like, in this really weird scenario for a reason of voting against Hillary because they really had a knowledge of how horrible okay maybe I can consider dating somebody who you know actually did vote but if anybody was really like you know excited about voting for Trump and thought that Trump was good in any way shape or form um oh my god how could you do that and and wore the hat how about if he wore how about if he wore the hat oh god yeah yeah you would, you would no. not go out with him. Huh? Uh, no, not a, I mean, oh my God, never. Um, you know, I was I was a never Trump, and I was out there very vocal about it. So, um, you know, I was if I was going to be obnoxious about it, you know, if I was on the market or something, never Trump voters, right? Um, you just yeah. you just don't you just don't. But yeah. in any event, no. So so you are absolved of the the guilt. I understand, John, but. So so then, did you call to argue with me then a little bit? No, no, just just one one interesting point, and I think Rush Limbaugh just glanced at it today. But think of the the, the constant use of the word extremism and mm-hmm. radicalism, uh, unidentified, you know, just completely unidentified, and uh, compare that with uh, the, the enemies that are identified by the left. That's the Ku Klux Klan. The white extremists, extremists in general, no no name, okay, I swear, sooner or later, a young generation is going to forget about Islam. They were, they were not Islamic terrorists that flew those planes. They're going to be yep. Ku Klux Klaners. Oh, my God, that would be insane. You know, it's not, not right, maybe not right now, but maybe the next generation, that's going to be completely gone. All they're going to think about is extremism and then Ku Klux Klan. And they're going to put the two together, and uh, those are the people who are going to be flying the planes into the World Trade Center. You see the connection there? Well, and then of course there's a, you know the, there's 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 the 9/11 is an inside job and everything else. You know um, this not identifying that extremism extremism is like terrorism. It's it's a it's an empty term. You say, well, what are you an extremist about? I am pulling up from my Facebook right now. I have put this here, um, the quotation from Martin Luther King Jr. letter from Birmingham jail. I love this portion. He says, he says, though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist 
As I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Now then I'm going to disagree with the people that he's going to go on and say are good. He says, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Right? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? You know, of course, he thinks the Christian gospel is good. I disagree. Uh, Was not Martin Luther an extremist? John Bunyan? Abraham Lincoln? You know, et cetera. So the question, he says, this is quoting King, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or love? Will we be extremists for preservation of injustice or the extension of justice in that dramatic scene on calvary's hill three men were crucified we must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime the crime of extremism two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment the other jesus christ you know again he thinks was good an extremist for love truth goodness and thereby rose above his environment is perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. End quote. Yeah. Now well, nobody, well, that's, that's... nobody left or right wants to pull this quotation out. You know, extremism is bad. Everybody just has their pet extremism. You know, their pet extremists. What is uh? Did did Limbaugh come out actually in favor of extremism or just say, oh, it's empty, and so therefore you know, future generations you know, are going to make this just, mistake? You know, I, it was right at the end of his show. It might have been on Michael Savage. I don't quite know. It's just a passing comment. Like, uh, mm. uh, oh, people think, uh, you know, the Ku Klux Klan or white extremists were the uh, murderers. Now, um, those people, uh, the left is constantly pushing those groups as extremists and as the enemy. I mean, all those people you mentioned in Martin Luther King's message, that's way too literate for the young generation. They don't know any, any, anything about those people. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. The extremists have been identified, and uh, the guilty murderers have been pushed off the stage. And there's going to be a young generation that's going to uh, not know that Muslims uh, threw those airplanes. That's, right. Uh, and, that's and... my point. I think I expanded on this point anyway. No, and, and of course you did, and, and of course what we like to do when we are listening to people with whom we're sympathetic is we will sort of you know fill in the picture the way that we'd like to see it filled in as well. So probably you did. You probably made their point even better than they did. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, think, I thank you for that. Where were you on 9-11, by the way, John? Well, I was living and working out on the little island of Guam, way out in the Pacific. So Mm -hmm. so it was the middle of the night, and my uh, lovely secretary called me at the middle of the night, and uh, she said, oh, the uh, World Trade Center has collapsed. I said, what? That can't possibly happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it started on the TV, and and it did. But I'll tell you, all through the 90s, I was telling my friends in the insurance business, which I was in, uh, not to work in the World Trade Centers. I mean, I knew a few of them that, that had the possibility of working there. I said, don't do it. It was obvious to me that those buildings were going to get hit again after 1993. 93, right, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, but everybody was asleep. Everything was Monica Lewinsky, you know, other silly mm-hmm. stuff. I said, I think we ought to worry about some Muslim terrorists. But I was the only one saying that. And I was way out in Guam, too. So. Right. 
There you right. go. Yeah. So, um, well, you know, uh, one other su- subject, uh, the term white separatist, white uh, supremacist. Have you ever heard anybody say what that is? Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, a supremacist, what it is? I, I don't I mean, know. Usually, I, I have an idea. Usually, so, so supremacism would mean that somehow whites should get special favors, privileges, be treated in, in yeah, some like, way like differently seg- than anybody like else. The, like the segregated water fountains from years past. I think that's mm-hmm. what the uh, news media wants you to think, but I don't think anybody's actually saying that. I heard on a, a, a network news cast uh, on the radio, somebody let something slip. They interviewed a guy at Texas A&M, allegedly a white supremacist, okay, and mm-hmm. uh, he said what he was actually demonstrating uh, the use of uh, racial-based legislation, laws, and regulations that go back to the 1960s. Now, uh, uh, you know, co- affirmative action and everything else, he said the, the, the people who are suffering from that are white people. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Now, right. the, only person right. I, the only person I remember arguing against all of that was Ayn Rand. Remember in her... Uh, article about uh, oh yeah because you know every everybody was saying that yes of you know of course all of the prior jim crow laws and actual you know the the legal segregation all of that is evil and so everybody presented this as the natural solution or antidote to that but of course this is just as wrong because it's also based on on race as well uh, that takes right, us a right. little bit far far afield from where I wanted to go, but in in a way okay. it connects because in a way it connects because there is a sense, you know, and people will say, oh well, you know, we elected Trump and everything, we really want to fight this enemy and defend Americans and stuff, but th- this idea that we're going to defend the United States and and the American way of life by cutting off immigration generally and not taking a rational principled approach to the problem it's it's completely wrong you know what is what right. is united states united states is supposed to be a nation based on reason individual rights pursuit of happiness right and that is not what we're you know what we're getting in our immigration program. You know, what what did Trump promise? He says we're going to keep Americans safe. You know how he wants to keep Americans safe? He wants to put a big wall around everywhere. Um, he wants the NSA to be all powerful, right? Um, he's doing everything that you know in in the name of safety. But he refuses to name, identify the enemy. He's making nice with the Saudis. He, he is not actually addressing the real threat. He is becoming a, a, a threat to our livelihood as well. I think he is, you know, because, again, he's, he's, he's going to keep us safe by taxing us more and spending it on a big wall. Um, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I voted for him, but I expected a mixed bag, which he certainly yeah. is. And uh, he's just a New York liberal, liberal. Tax and spend, spend some more. He loves low interest rates. Okay, so he's a mm-hmm. some sort of Keynesian. Um, mm-hmm. The um, uh, Supreme Court uh, nomination was pretty good, and, and all his people that he suggested were all constitutional conservatives, which is good. Uh, cutting down regulations is good. 
uh, pro-business atmosphere is good, as opposed to Obama's definite anti-business, anti-capitalist philosophy. Do you see that? Yeah, but but think about this. There is there is an anti-business, anti-capitalist element to him as well because Trump is about protectionism and forcing everybody to hire yeah. American and source American and everything else, and that is an un-American notion. The idea that you're going to tell, you know, Steve Jobs, for example, I was tweeting, uh, not Steve Jobs. God, I wish it was Steve Jobs. Uh, Tim Cook. Tim Cook was tweeting recently about the fact that he's got, I believe, 230, 250, I can't remember, colleagues at Apple who are dreamers, you know, affected by this DACA, uh, you know, potential of, of the revocation of DACA. And they are just good, peaceful, productive people, probably, if Apple has them, right? Because I don't think Apple would keep them on if they weren't out there producing value. Um. Yeah. What we're, we want to well, deport these people, you know, and, and the, the, the vicious vitriol that I see out there on Twitter, you know, that wants to deport this type of person. It's, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And it is, it's anti, it's anti-American to tell Tim Cook who he has to hire to build these beautiful iPhones that keep us all connected around the world. Right, right. Okay, well, I'll uh, let you go uh, to your next <laughs> Sorry, topic. Then. I'm definitely animated today. I'm ranting because, you know, in this country, we're just we're just not going to follow, you know, the the right solution to this problem, and it, we're not going to do it under Trump either, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Talk to you later, Amy. Thanks okay. Thanks, John, for calling. <laughs> oh, poor John. If somebody else does want to talk, you hit the one button. I know somebody's there on hold at least. If you if you want, yeah. Um. I am a bit upset today, but I, I tell me, tell me where I'm wrong that somehow it's, it's, you know, it, it's American to let these people in. This is what you have to decide. And I, I do, I do not think that because nine 11 happened that we are therefore all to live as if we're in a life, a lifeboat. We're not supposed to be in a constant state of emergency, and yet that is what our politicians have been saying, that we're supposed to accept life as if we're in a constant state of emergency. We're supposed to go through our airports and have these demeaning and demoralizing screenings and nudie pictures when you walk through the things and all the different stuff that goes on. This has been going on for 16 years, and then we have President of the United States supposedly the most powerful country in the world, he gives a speech on 9-11 and doesn't even name what the enemy is. When he did it during campaign speeches and stuff to get elected, no problem. But when it's really important to stand up for the moral righteousness of self-defense of the United States, you know, he, all that stuff he's going to say, well, how is it that we are morally justified in being so strong against these people. Well, they're the most evil that we've ever seen. Well, are they just, you know, sort of garden variety psycho nihilists? How is it that they're the most evil? It must be because they're animated by a truly evil ideology. Nobody is that evil unless they're animated by a truly evil ideology. And he, he refuses to name it. So they're having a some big debate on Twitter after what I threw out there just before, and I, it's because I catch it in the middle. Sometimes it happens to me with the chat room conversations as well. If I catch it in the middle, there's no way I'm going to catch up again. But, yeah, so I told you what it was. 
that Donald Trump tweeted out there that got me all upset. And yes, he is making nice with the Saudis as if we can have some sort of alliance with them. And they continue to violate the rights of their citizens, particularly women within Saudi Arabia. Every so often you hear stories about intellectuals, women, their rights being violated, perhaps even lives taken away. Um, This is not a rights-respecting nation. This is a nation that was complicit in 9-11. And here's this self-satisfied picture of Trump in this meme. Again, you can check it out at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. It's a kind of vulgar thing, but you may as well just have something ridiculous there because this idea that he's doing anything that is befitting an American president by putting his hand on that, by, his, by the way, his hands look small, um, putting his hand on that orb with these Saudis unifying around, let's fight, quote, extremism. It's terrible. I, I, you know, I would, I would love at that moment, you know, somebody comes in and has some loudspeakers, kind of like, the, you know, this is the John Galt speaking, and just quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. about extremism. He should be ashamed of himself as an American president doing that. It's just, anyway, it's terrible. Uh, Where are we? Where are we now in terms of generally culturally? We see that our political leaders are nowhere in terms of what the enemy is doing because our political leaders are not doing what needs to be done. As I said, Robert Spencer has a story at Jihad Watch, which he just published yesterday, Over 11,000 blank Syrian passports are in the hands of the Islamic State. And this is where I'm going to again challenge you Trump supporters, because recently I had to do a little bit of research into Trump's immigration policy. And I don't know if you know this, but the last that I've been able to find and read, Trump still has in the budget proposal that he has put forth, they don't, of course, they haven't passed a budget, but the the budget proposal that Trump put forth had in it funding for 50,000 refugees, to bring 50,000 refugees into this country. And this is after he started to learn in the courts, because he learned very quickly in the courts that if he thinks he's going to screen out refugees and say that, you know, people from certain countries can't come here and stuff where they have this Muslim tie, that he's having a lot of difficulties making that distinction. So suppose you say, oh, well, he wants to bring in Christian refugees. And so that's why he includes the funding for the refugees in there. He wants to bring in Christian refugees. Christians are being persecuted, and they are, right? Um, There are some Christians being horror and, and Jewish people are also, but Christians in more numbers. Why? Because there are more Christians. Um, You know, bring refugees, Christian refugees here. We want to do that. And that's why he put the funny in there. Suppose you want to defend Trump on that ground. I say, well, first of all, Trump supporters, especially those who think they're objectivists, is this a proper function of government to put funding for 50,000 refugees in our budget when we have so much debt? And of course, he just made a deal with the devil, a.k.a. the Democrats, about the debt ceiling, a really bad deal as far as we can tell. There's no leverage. We talked about that last time. So, you know, here he is putting in this budget proposal funding for 50,000 refugees, knowing that if 
he's trying to, um, you know, set a policy, some sort of executive order saying we're not going to have immigration from certain countries and therefore he's going to try to bring in only Christian refugees and not Muslim refugees, it's not going to work. He's not going to be able to do it. So he needs to actually strike from the entire budget. At the very least, he needs to get rid of any funding for any refugees. Why? Because we're going to have a potential of a whole bunch of, quote, Syrian refugees, passports, forged by Islamic State because they've got these blank ones. So, believes that they've stolen over 11,000 blank Syrian. Now, of course, you didn't need to have this particular story to know that there's a danger of Islamic State militants coming in via Syria, Syrian refugee populations. You didn't need to know that. But, what you know, at the very least, if you're a Trump supporter, I assume you would agree that our tax dollars should not be using being used to support the bringing in of refugee populations when those refugee populations have some risk of Muslim people. And and it's not a proper function of government anyway. If people want to fund the bringing of refugees to this country, let them do so as an act of charity, a private act of charity. It's not a function of government. And yet this is the sort of thing that he's doing out there, even though he knows that he's not going to be able to have it succeed in court, right? The courts have challenged him saying, oh, well, we're going to bring in refugees from here and not from there. Next thing that we should be worried about is the the cultural, right? Yeah, not only is our enemy getting bold and still going out there and making plans to infiltrate our country and attack us, and of course they've there's been attacks, jihad attacks in the West quite regularly recently, horrible attacks with cars mowing down innocent people and everything else. So there's that. What about the culture? Daily Wire has got this piece about the United Kingdom teachers, UK teachers, too scared to teach about September 11th terror attacks. Today, on the anniversary of September 11th, terror attacks on America, parents across the country are telling their children what happened on that horrible day 16 years ago. But the same isn't happening everywhere in the world. Some places are just too politically correct to say the truth. That radical Islamists, now that's his term, I I don't know that I would use that, radical Islamists attack the world. Anyone and everyone who isn't like them. More than 60 countries had citizens who died in the attacks, etc. You know, why, why do you have to say that they attacked the world? Why not? It's atrocious enough that they attacked America. And really what they were attacking were symbols of capitalism and people who participated in capitalism as a way to pursue their own happiness. That's the what was well, more than 60 countries. So therefore, it makes it bad. That's not what makes it bad. United Kingdom lost 67 citizens that day, but some UK teachers are simply too terrified to teach their students about the attacks because they fear a backlash from Muslim parents. A leading expert in counter-extremism education told The Telegraph. We have someone who was appointed by the government to turn around three schools at the heart of the Trojan horse scandal said that some teachers have a, quote, misplaced concern that they will cause offense if they raise 9-11 in the classroom. 
some teachers, particularly those who work in schools with a high proportion of Muslim students, see it as a contentious topic and shy away from teaching it. They have a fear this might be controversial, he said. They think if we teach about this, we might get Muslim parents objecting. A principal of Waverly Education Foundation has advised the Department for Education on combating counter-extremism in schools said that such views are misguided. Uh, there's a fear among teachers, but it's really not grounded in anything. It's based on their stereotypical view of a community as opposed to reality, etc. Whatever their reason, if they're acting out of fear and then they're not saying the truth. I mean, that's why I think Trump refused to name the enemy in his speech, because he was afraid of any criticism and backlash that he might get um, as, as a result of, of, you know, actually calling out the, the enemy, actually naming the enemy. What, what was uh, Ben Shapiro's comment on this, that the West is done if indeed we do not talk about the September 11th terrorist attacks and we don't talk about what motivated the people who were trying to kill us. How in the world can we prevent history from repeating itself unless we actually name the, the causes that were motivating? Now, if you want to go back further, you know, again, 9-11 was not the beginning of this story. We had failed to deal with the Islamic enemy properly ever since you go back to the 50s and the oil wells in the Middle East were nationalized and we just let it happen. And, you know, from there on, we were appeasing, appeasing, appeasing. So it could only get worse. And then the question is, at what point, you know, what has to happen? Some people say, well, you know, why are you saying it's the Islamic enemy? Uh, aren't these just terrorists? What is it about Islam, Amy? You know, how, how do you have any knowledge about this? I actually did years ago lead a Quran reading group. So a group of us read from cover to cover the Quran, and we also looked at commentary on the Quran that had been written by Robert Spencer, who is the curator and, you know, kind of the, the main writer over at Jihad Watch. He is Jihad Watch, essentially. And what I had the privilege of doing at the end of, uh, after we finished reading the entire Quran and everything and had our meetings once a week for a while, I got to interview Robert Spencer and ask him some questions based on questions that have been submitted to me by other participants in the group and have this discussion. And you can listen to that discussion. I put a link to it in the program notes. If you go just to Blog Talk Radio and you put in the Blog Talk Radio search engine, Robert Spencer, it will come up. It's from six years ago, this interview that I did with him. And I talk about, you know, the Quran. I've read it. I have seen the calls to violence in it. I've seen the descriptions multiple times of Jews as the descendants of apes and pigs, uh, you know, that, that joining the cause of jihad is the thing that's going to ensure you all the best things in the afterlife and everything else, that you're only good, you know, the best thing that you can do is to take up arms in order to further the, the spread of Islam. It's all in there. And then the question is, do people actually take it seriously? Because there are other religions where the Holy Book says, you know, condones violence and, and things as well. But it seems that only in, you know, in today's world, it is only Islam that is motivating enough people for them to be a serious threat to us. If we 
weren't so politically correct and we were willing to actually state the truth about this and say, okay, I understand that not all Muslims take this seriously, but enough of them do such that we need to take measures accordingly. And, you know, what do we need to do, for instance, with immigration? If you want to be politically correct about it and you also want to be economically very incorrect about it, you say, hey, we're going to save American jobs. We're just going to shut the borders and keep Americans safe. You know, we might as well just close the borders and not let anybody in because then we won't let in terrorists. don't want to name what's motivating them. We'll just call them terrorists. Uh, those bad guys, those evil guys, whatever they are, we won't let them in. And we'll also save Americans from competition for their jobs, you know, because we need to... America first. That's the sort of thing that's being put out there as a solution as well as an all-powerful NSA that can you know, engage in bulk surveillance and get data on you without any probable cause, without any particularized suspicion. These are the sort of things that are being peddled as solutions in today's world. What we need to do, and again, he didn't call out the fact that it was a religious fundamentalism that motivated these people. It makes sense, though, right? Only people who really thought that by doing this, they were ensuring themselves some wonderful life in the afterworld, that they were engaged in some sort of a noble cause for a, you know, a, a life beyond those are the people that would be motivated to commit such a horrible atrocity like this. Uh, if you recall, before this happened, whenever they had any sort of a hijacker protocol dealing with hijackers, it was never written, the protocol was never written on the premise that the people were going to be suicidal and want to fly planes into buildings. They could not even fathom this. Now we can, and the reason that we can, the difference that makes the difference is because they were motivated by religion. They were jihadists motivated by Islam. That's what they were. Now, does that mean we need to have an immigration policy that keeps out all Muslims? Not necessarily. You know, I've talked about this in past shows on immigration. You and I could have a discussion over wine and beer or whatever. Where are the places around the world where if we were going to let people come in from that country, we could not distinguish those who are part of jihadist groups and those who are peaceful Muslims? Are we going to be able to distinguish that? Can we do an effective screening? If we can do an effective screening, I don't, you know, I would not say keep them out simply because they call themselves Muslim. We can't do that. We are United States of America. If our government is going to act to restrict immigration, that's just another type of government action, the restriction of immigration. If it's going to act to do it, it needs to do it on the principle of individual rights. And it can't just do it on the basis of holding certain ideas in, in the head. You have to have some reason to believe that the, they are associated with a true enemy. Now, right now, you could say, okay, well, Syria. We can't let in anyone from Syria right now because we have no way of knowing whether they are affiliated with the Islamic State, which is an Islamic supremacist organization that essentially wants to take over everything in the name of Islam. 
So, okay, fine. Then you, you have to keep, but, but, you know, don't have a restrictive immigration policy and think that therefore you are protecting us. What we need to do is we need to have a principled, measured, targeted immigration policy. We need to, and yes, our courts need to uphold it. That's one of the challenges. The, the things that I actually are sympathetic with, uh, with Trump about is that he's got this challenge with the courts insofar as he is willing to name certain countries where the risk of bringing in people from those countries is too high, even though he won't state it publicly. He has people who are telling him, hey, don't accept people from this country or that country. Insofar as he's trying to put into law restrictions from those countries, he's not doing it. And, you know, then, of course, the question is, suppose he does put those restrictions in. We need to have those restrictions in place, right? can't come in from Syria, can't come in, say, from Iran. I wouldn't let people in from Saudi Arabia either. But, you know, again, we can go through and I'd sit down with Robert Spencer and other people who were very knowledgeable about you know, what are the hotbeds in the world of jihad. And where would you, if you were tailoring your immigration policy, where would you say no and why and everything? And I try to apply this principle. Where are these people actively engaged in an effort to destroy us and our way of life, actively engaged in this? Where are they actually taking actions to support those who would destroy us in our way of life? We are entitled to keep people out from those areas. And if there is some sort of, um, you know, difficulty in, in the accuracy of the screening that's possible, we're going to err on the side of keeping people out. And yeah, we're going to keep some people out, but if we keep some people out that are innocent, I put those people in the same category as innocent civilians in a time of war that may suffer because of the things that we're doing to defend ourselves. There are certain things we are entitled to do to defend ourselves in a time of war. This is war. You know, so those people out there on Twitter who say, I'm for mass Muslim immigration and everything else, they are liars. They're total liars because I am for doing what we need to do to defend ourselves from this enemy. But we need to do it on principle. We need to do it also quickly. 16 years later, Trump saying his empty stuff is not believable to anybody. I'm sure a lot of them are laughing about it right now. In the meantime, he's making nice with the Saudis and everything else. So I think it's it's pretty ridiculous. I do have time. I think I'm going to try to take this call here, but hopefully it won't be too long. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. This is Michael, uh, a.k.a. Redmond MTB. Hi, and thank you for coming back and for your support of the show. How are you? I'm doing well. I had a, I had a question for you that switches gears a little bit. I've been mm-hmm. an objectivist for, for a long time, but thinking back to 2001, I was completely preoccupied with having children and, and then raising children. And only recently kind of re-engaged with the objectivist community. Mm-hmm. So I was curious how, how you saw the community or the movement now versus then, because I'm pretty excited by the stuff that Iran's doing, these new people that are coming to the fight. And it mm-hmm. seems like we're growing at least at a, on a philosophical level. I mean, are you encouraged by that? You've been you've been in the yeah. Midst of it for a no, long I mean, time. I, I definitely am, and and in particular, I mean, here's Yaron right now. He's traveling all over the world, speaking to groups, and this has not happened on that kind of scale ever before. So it, it's fabulous. 
maybe at some point I can get to travel around and, and speak some as well. I would I'd be interested potentially in doing that. I, I like the idea that there are, you know, freedom-minded groups all around who want to hear about philosophy and, and ideas and not just, you know, have kind of a Trump sense of, oh, you know, nationalism and freedom or whatever. He, I, I think he maybe said freedom once, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but the the people, you know, in these groups, if they're wanting to hear your own speak, then they're definitely more philosophically minded. And that that's heartening, I believe. Yeah, and it's, it just seems like the outreach to to the young people that that's at least to me it seems like that's incur- that's that's occurring at a greater rate. Right. Yes. Yes. I think so as well. It actually, when I look at my stats on Blog Talk, most of the people in my audience are from kind of mid twenties to mid forties, which is I think pretty decent. Um, yeah. That's that's not bad. Of course, you know, can I appeal to even younger? I don't know. Oh, gosh, I am nearly out of time now, so I have to let you go. But can we speak next time as well? Can you call in next time as well? Sure, sure. Okay, beautiful. Sure. Thank you. Um, everybody, sorry, we'll have to go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to continue the conversation. We're going to speak next time about the connection with Antifa because one thing that I think is going to inhibit our ability to deal with the Islamic enemy is the violent anti-reason tactics of Antifa and our media's complicity with that. So I'll leave that as a teaser for next time, but you can check out the program notes at the blog at don'tletitgo.com if you want to see what we're going to do Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 p.m. Pacific time, and I'll talk to you then. Thanks very much for joining. Take care.